0: Thank you, Colin. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to worship. As Colin said, my name is Eric, and I get to pastor down here. And um, it's really my privilege and honor, and I say that because, well, that's what all pastors are supposed to say. But no, I actually mean it. It's my privilege and honor to stand up here and to walk us through God's word. That psalm that Colin just read through was from Psalm 90 which really is an amazing thing. It is Psalm 90, one of the Psalms of Moses. So some 500 years before David, Moses writes one of the books of the Psalms, and it's talking about the prayer for the people, that God would do a thing in them, that he would teach the people nationally or or, or corporately, but also individually. And he says, teach us to number our days. Now that's an interesting prayer For a leader, in Moses' case, the the shepherd of the sheep, or or a pastor to make, teach us to number our days. What is he saying? Teach us how to do math? No, of course not. Teach us how to make our lives count. Teach us to understand that there is a finality, there is a terminus to this earthly life. So what do we do with this life while we have it, while we live it? Do we merely muddle through, tread water, try to exist until one day in the sweet, sweet, by and by, I'll fly away? That's not the Christian experience as God intends it. So Moses prays, teach us to number our days. And praise God, God has answered that prayer. Now that leads us to what you see on screen, this exceedingly abundant. In the month of August, we typically walk through a vision series at our church, at all five campuses, saying, hey, this is who we are. This is what we're doing here. This is what we believe God has called us to be and to do, how we do church, what we're trying to accomplish in our community and in the world. We normally walk through an entire book of Scripture in the summer, and then we'll start one up again in September. And I'm pleased to announce that, Lord willing, on September 11th, we will be starting a sermon series in the book of Joshua, be a lot of fun as we walk through the book of Joshua, Lord willing, all the way through next May. But right now, it's still August, which means we have been in the middle of an investment campaign. And we are concluding that public phase of our investment campaign this morning. So if you're visiting with us this morning and you're about to make a run for the door, I just want you to know they're locked. (laughs) I'm kidding. We can't do that. That's a fire hazard. No, no, no. We're going to talk about We're going to talk about our resources. We're going to talk about our stewardship because it's the most common, most frequent topic of Jesus's teaching because Jesus knows that the number one competitor for our hearts, net of the fall in Genesis 3, the number one competitor for our hearts is wealth. And so Jesus takes a dead aim at that again and again. And most frequently, people don't like him to talk about it. So we want to do so very gently, very very directly, and also with as much humility as we possibly can. So I want you to know I have been praying all week, all month, about, Lord, how can I have the wisdom to convey your truth to your people in your spirit from your word? That's all. That's all I'm praying. Is that too much to ask? Yes. But we're going to try this anyway. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, because we're talking about an investment campaign where you number your days. You take stock of who you are, of what you are, of whose you are. You begin to think intentionally, proactively, how will I marshal the resources that God has entrusted to me to accomplish his purpose through me? We are trying at this church across all five campuses to raise, we believe, what God's led us to do. is about $6 million. That number blows my face clean off. I can't imagine. it's, it's, It's too much. It is exceedingly abundant. And yet, as we've sat around with our trusty elders and the rest of the staff and our shepherding elders and the leadership of all five campuses, and we've dreamed about what we believe God is calling us to expand and to accomplish, Number works out to about six million dollars for an acquisition of two buildings that are adjacent to this campus just to the east, plus some pieces of property that will one day, Lord willing, house a worship center. Uh, Some expansions at our South Campus, our Hope Campus, our White House Campus, our Henderson Campus, some debt relief that we currently carry, as well as some emphasis in our missions partners in Sierra Leone, West Africa to build there a school. So there's a lot. But I want you to understand this is not some attempt to guilt you into or shame you into any sort of temporary response because that doesn't scale. And the Lord's not really pleased by that. Instead, we get to see really what giving is all about. And it's our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this Giving is in response to God's grace. Giving is in response to God's grace. A lot of times churches get into some white water when they start trying to talk about tithing or giving or there's offerings or there's this. Is it 10%? Here's the the amazing thing. In the New Testament, there is never, ever, ever a percentage. It's just not there. The only percentage we get is in our passage this morning. You're going to find it in verse 7. So We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to bring you up to speed in case you haven't been here last couple weeks or you missed last week. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, which is the fourth letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. We have letters 2 and 4. We don't have 1 and 3, and I don't know why. But at the end of his second letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, he references that these people in Corinth and the province of Achaia were very, very eager to give to Project Jerusalem. Project Jerusalem is all about the apostles gathering a collection from these Gentile churches in what is today Turkey and Europe to fund and relieve some of the persecution that's happening with the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem and in Antioch. And they called it Project Jerusalem. And these Corinthians got super excited. They were all lathered up and they were going to give. And then Paul got delayed. Prison will do that to you from time to time. He got thrown in jail in Rome, and the Corinthians took it personally. They said, well, you said you were coming, but you didn't. And so since you didn't come, they were taking their frustration with Paul out on the believers in Jerusalem, and they withheld their gift. And so Paul writes them Second Corinthians. That's actually his fourth letter. He says, hey, listen, let me explain what happened. And then he gives sort of an explanation and a defense of the church with all these little vignettes of the meaning of his ministry and the matter of the church all the way through chapter seven. Now, this is a good progression of doctrine in view of God's mercy, in view of all that God's doing in and through the church. This is how we respond. And so then he takes us to chapter eight. We talked about generosity last week. This morning, we're in chapter nine. We're gonna cover all 15 verses as efficiently as I possibly can. Paul says in chapter 9, verse 1, now, it is superfluous. Not often you get to say superfluous. That's good. It's extra. It's a little overmuch, but follow me, Paul says. It is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. Now, this is in a context. The saints here is not just all the saints of the church ever through space and time. This is specifically dealing with those Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem and on the... uh, in that area in that region there, Antioch, that are being persecuted, that have been absolutely stomped by the persecution that broke out after Stephen was martyred. He says, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints because you already know about it. We've talked about it. You were lathered up and ready to participate in it. For I know your readiness. Now, this is amazing how the church works 2,000 years ago and how it's instructive for us 2,000 years later for i know your readiness of which i boast about you to the people of macedonia <laughs> it's incredible this sometimes i have to be reminded this is inspired scripture this is the very words of god in a personal communication that's very practical from a person to some people in a place at a period for a purpose Paul's saying, listen, you Achaeans, that is the, the province where Corinth is located, you guys got all lathered up about supporting Project Jerusalem. So you know what I did? Paul says, I went and told the people of Macedonia, that's Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And I said, you guys, you guys, you guys, the people in Achaia, the Corinthians, they are super lathered up. And the people of Macedonia went, well, sure they are. The, the Achaeans, the Corinthians, they're rich, they're loaded, they got tons of cash, Paul goes, no, 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 they're gonna get in on this deal. You gotta follow suit. Well, the Macedonians were kind of slow to start because they said, look, we got tons of nobility. We got tons of integrity. We don't have any resources. The, The churches of Macedonia were beat down and they were poor. So watch what Paul says. Verse two, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. You got them on board because you were so zealous, and then you hit the pause button. Uh Uh-oh. Verse 3, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. What's going on here? At the end of chapter 8, Paul tells these Corinthians, hey, I'm sending Titus who I'm sure was thrilled with this job assignment, and I'm sending two other brothers. We don't get their names, but church tradition, and we kind of glean this from the book of Acts, was probably a guy named Jason from Thessalonica in Macedonia and a guy named Sopater, probably from Berea in Macedonia. So Titus and these two Macedonians are going to come down to Corinth and go, hey, we've rallied our stuff. We've collected a gift, even though we're dirt poor. You remember? (laughs) So dirt poor. They couldn't even spit. They couldn't even pay attention. But we've gathered our gift. They're going to come down to you, Corinth, and they're going to collect your offering. You better be ready because I don't want you to be humiliated. Now, this is a great reminder for us practically as a church 2,000 years later. Hey, we're all in this together. It's not somebody else's job or responsibility. It's our opportunity, which Paul uh, he continues. I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready. As I said, you would be. Paul's being very guarded and protective over his apostolic and his pastoral integrity. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated. I I told them that you guys were the pace setters, that you guys were the the ones who were the tip of the spear, and now if you say that you're not going to give because you're mad at me, ugh, That's really going to harm the integrity of the church, of the apostolic leadership, of the pastorate. To say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. This is not a a grinding, grudging kind of, of opportunity. So we might nuance our big idea and say this way, giving isn't a grudge. It's not a grind. It's a response or it's in response to God's grace. Look, I don't want you to miss out on this. I don't want you to miss out God's best for you. So I'm inviting you to go ahead and follow through to fruition and completion, the promise and the pledge that you made. Verse six, the point is this, ah, now Paul's going to go from practical to very, very Pertinent and doctrinal. The point is this, and then he's going to quote from two Old Testament passages. And I love this about Paul; he's not just cat a nine tailsing them. No, no, no. He's doing theology. He's going to quote from Malachi three ten. He's going to quote from Psalm one twelve nine. He's going to do theology. Hey, from Scripture, let me apply this to your practical, everyday life. The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Isn't that weird? Does something just kind of go off in you and you go, why why is he quoting like Aesop's fable here? This is weird. He's just using cause and effect. That's not supposed to be in the Bible. No, 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 understand. Cause and effect is a physical, material notion, but it is rooted in the real reality, which is spiritual. And we say that again, it is rooted in the real reality, which is actually spiritual. The things that happen in our material world are merely evidences and shadows and flickers and faint foreshadowings of the reality of the spirit realm. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. There is a cause and effect. And amazingly, God honors this. He says in verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, you've heard that before. If you've been in church maybe more than once, you've probably heard that verse before. God loves a cheerful giver. So let's do a a real quick, a little bit of a lab experiment, you and me. Let's do some Christian Ethics 101. All right. Is it ever correct to do the right thing for the wrong reason? Don't ask your neighbor Don't look around for help. Is it appropriate to do the right thing for the wrong reason? Mm -hmm. Let me nuance that. Is it okay to do the right thing even if you don't feel like it? Ah, now that might sound a little bit different, but rest assured, those questions are identical. Now, what's going on here? Because there seems to be a bit of a mixed message. And it's because we're Westerners and we read Scripture in a way that Scripture was not intended to be read. Way back in Amos chapter 5, God comes to the nation of Israel and he says, what is that? Oh, what have you done? What is that on the altar? You're doing the sacrifices, but that's like a three-legged raccoon. And I'm not even sure what that used to be. You're just going through the motions. Stop it. It's vile and disgusting. You're doing the right thing, but for wholly wrong reasons. Your heart is not in it. Stop it. Tells them to stop the sacrificial system in Amos 5 because their hearts aren't in it, even though they're doing it mechanically correctly. And then Jesus comes on the scene in his earthly ministry. And who are his biggest antagonists? Well, it's the Pharisees. Why? Because Jesus, really not so concerned with winning friends, Goes to the Pharisees and goes, "You guys, you're you're like um, you're like open graves. You're like whitewashed tombs. You do the right stuff, but your hearts aren't, aren't in it. Stop it." And so here Paul says, "Don't give out of compulsion." And right here's where you wanted me to Benedict and let's go home, because you're like, "Wait, this is the best sermon ever, Pastor. You're saying I don't feel like it. I shouldn't tithe. Wrong. I'm not finished. Not finished." To understand scripture that way is to put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, don't you see? Paul and God through Amos and Jesus is not saying, if you don't feel like it, don't do it. He's saying, change your heart. Change your heart. What is it that you feel like you can't let go of whatever God's calling you to do? Your heart must be changed, but you can't by yourself. But teach us to number our days. And God says, I will bust forth. And so Paul quotes Malachi 3.10. I will open the storehouses of heaven. Is it a transactional thing? No, no, it's way better than that. It's way better than that. Test me in this, Paul quotes from Malachi 3. Paul's calling for a heart change. The point is not that you should give if you don't feel like it. The point is, do you understand the enormity of what Paul just said? God loves a cheerful giver. Not just cheerful, like little apple-cheeked people, children eating cupcakes. No, no. You know this by now. The word "cheerful" is hilarion. It's it's a deep, profound, transcending joy. Now, God loves us. He cannot love you more than he does. So there's a little bit of an interesting way that Paul does this. God loves it because just like you, if you are a parent, when you see your children doing something that is so good for them, you just swell with affection and attention and emotion. You don't love them anymore, but you just love that. You love that for them because you want their best for them. Now, multiply that times eternity, and infinity. That's how God feels when he sees a person releasing their hold on wealth or resources. He loves that because he sees that person is numbering their days. They're making their lives count. Well, to pick up speed here, verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And, (laughs) now, Paul's going to do what Paul does. He's going to mix metaphors. Paul's going to go into the most fascinating, thrilling metaphor ever. Farming. Let's go farming. Well, if you happen to be a farmer, I mean no disrespect. I'm from the Texas paint handle, and you've seen one tractor. That's plenty, all right? Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that Having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's proactively Barney fifing this. He's nipping it in the bud. What if I don't have enough? What if I don't have adequate resources? What if and Paul goes, no, 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 nip it, nip it in the bud. God is sovereign. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the cosmos with all of the cattle on those hills as well. He is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, Paul does something amazing, and I don't know that we ever treat this adequately. Paul mixes the realms By quoting from Old Testament scripture, Paul blurs the line between the spiritual and the material, and it's absolutely sensational. More on that here in just a moment. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your 401k. No, sorry. (laughs) That'd be weird. We would not have any empty seats in here if that was the case. No, 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 no. For your righteousness, which, by the way, is the currency of the kingdom. We say this all the time. I want to say it again. It is not enough for you and me to have our sin removed, as great as that is. We must also be filled to the uttermost with the righteousness of God, for righteousness is the currency of his kingdom. Oh, when we sow our resources, God repays it with righteousness. Now that's fascinating, what Paul's just said. More on that in a moment. He who supplies seed to the sower, verse 10, and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. See, this is really fascinating what Paul's saying. Giving has all these effects. Giving actually produces not a one, not a two, but a threefold effect. Giving makes sure that the givers themselves are deeply and profoundly and eternally enriched. When we engage in giving and we express ourselves in generosity, we, the givers, are eternally enriched. Number two, the needs of the recipient are met. Wait a minute. We're Americans. Everything is a zero-sum game. Not with God. Not with God. We are enriched when we give, and the ones to whom we give are the recipients, and their needs are met. And then third, God is praised. He gets the credit and the glory for all of it. So there's a threefold dividend, we might say, when we give generously. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. People are hearing about what the Macedonians have done. People are hearing about the Achaeans, that you Gentile... Gentile Christians are giving of your resources to supply the needs of these Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem and Antioch and the whole world is going, there must be a God in heaven because that's what he should be like if he was really there. It's an amazing thing. By their approval of this service, verse 13, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Ah. Because of the gospel, it produces a generosity in us. Giving is in response to God's grace and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they, he's talking about the saints in Jerusalem who are being literally martyred and killed and persecuted, their homes, their businesses, being taken from them, their daughters and wives are being hauled off for all sorts of heinous acts. While they long for you, Corinthian Gentile Christians, and pray for you. (laughs) I got to tell you, I had the opportunity to be with a church in uh, Abruzzo, Italy this last uh, summer, this couple months ago. And they're going through a really, really difficult time and a lot of problems. And COVID has just decimated that country and that community and that church. And they stopped me on two separate occasions to let me know that they were praying for me and for Bethel, and had been since the last time I'd seen them. <sighs> I was like, "Oh no, 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 no! We're good. We're good. wow, wow!" And I, I mean, it just—it's it, a gut punch. These sweet people who are just barely hanging on because the government is against the evangelical church, COVID has ripped them to pieces—all these things—and they're like, "Oh." We so love Bethel in Tyler, Texas, and we're praying for you. Wow, it's amazing. So much so, Paul agrees. He says, while they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then verse 15, Paul does what Paul does. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is God's inexpressible gift? Well, yes, if the thought came into your mind, Jesus, that's always the right answer, we're in a church. But more specifically, the gift that God is getting it done through the hesitatings, through the wonderings, through the uncertainties, through the "Mm, maybes of a whole bunch of his people, these persecuted Jewish Christians who actually initially funded the churches that were planted in Turkey and Europe are now supporting them. And these people are praying for these people. And these people are supporting these people. What a gift of God. Only God in heaven, who is God in heaven, could accomplish something so marvelous, so mysterious. So Paul says, thanks be to God. He just erupts in praise. This Jew of Jews, this Pharisee of Pharisees, kind of can't believe that this is happening, that these Jewish believers in Jerusalem are praying for and longing for Corinthian Gentiles. Oh, God must be who God says he is. And we get to demonstrate that in our reaction to his grace. Giving is in response to God's grace. So let me give you four very quick principles on 2 Corinthians 9, and then I want to bring this all home to us. Four quick concluding principles on grace and generosity. Number one goes like this. When we sow the material, we reap the spiritual. Now, that may not grab you as it should, but that's because we don't understand the incredible strivings that for millennia man has been trying to figure out who exists in the material world. How do I bridge the gap to the spiritual realm? Well, when we sow, when we invest the material, the physical, we reap the spiritual. Let me put it this way. When we give generously of the temporal material assets or resources that we steward, there is a spiritual dividend of eternal righteousness. Did you catch that? When we give of our temporary physical stuff, it reaps an eternal spiritual dividend. This is what Paul is talking about. That's why he references Malachi 3 and Psalm 112 to illustrate that there is, in fact, an investment strategy with the Almighty, and it's pretty good. It's a fundamental truth that probably doesn't get enough attention, but when you devote physical assets and resources, the result is an increase in righteousness. No, I am not saying that you earn it. Far from it. I'm saying that God takes our willingness and our generosity and he converts it into righteousness, the currency of his kingdom, because that's the kind of God that he is. He invites us to bring loaves and fishes And then he does something spiritually grand and eternal and credits that righteousness to our account. Number two, generosity is the bridge between the physical and the spiritual. There's a whole lot of interest recently in Eastern mysticism and little bald-headed dudes in short sleeve orange robes and that they seem to have a corner on the market of being a spiritual person. Eh, No, not even close. This starts way back in eternity past with our all-wise God. It is a person who is intentionally and increasingly generous who walks easily between the spiritual and the physical. Man has always struggled with that mixture. This is why the the hypostatic union of Christ is such a hard thing for us to understand. The fact that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, that's hard for us. We can't really understand it. So we tend to err on one side or the other. And we like to compartmentalize. Well, that's spiritual. eh, That's physical. Well, one way we like to do that is say, well, that's my, that's my work life, that's my family life, that's my church life, and I'll keep those things separate, ne'er shall they ever meet. That is completely foreign to our God. The opposite extreme is to say that nothing physical has any relevance whatsoever, and indeed everything that is material doesn't matter. It's all just gonna burn. It's probably evil anyway. But both of those approaches are flawed, and they circulated for millennia. To Jesus... Everything was spiritual and interwoven with the material. They are inextricably intertwined. Are you longing for that? Are you longing to be a deeply spiritual person? More than likely, if you're not, it's because you're clinging too closely, too tightly to the stuff of this world. Perhaps the stuff of this world has us too tightly bound. Third point stewardship is God giving us a part in what he is doing least hear that. Stewardship is God giving us a part in what he's doing. There's a myth that's been circulating in the church for mm, probably about uh, two or three hundred years. It didn't used to be this way. With the rise of the enlightenment and with the rise of the modern age of the mindset of rational reason and logic, sort of things begin to change. There's a myth and it goes like this. I'm going to give God a portion of what I have, and then I get to do whatever I want with everything else. Now, that's wrong on about 30 levels. First of all, the, the emphasis seems to be on the little bit. I'm going to give him a portion. Like, here you go, God. Here's a cute little corner. Wow, we're talking about Yahweh, the God who is. So the emphasis is wrong there, but then to give God a little bit of mine, and then I can do whatever I want. In that equation, can I just tell you, you're setting yourself up as God in that equation, and God does not like that. He does not honor that. The eternal reality is that the world is God's and all that is in it, it's his. Owned people don't own things. We steward them, those things that don't belong to us. We have the opportunity to be increasingly loosened from stuff and tightened to God and practically his people, and we recognize that we have received much. So the technical definition, if you will, of stewardship goes like this. It is the radical, holistic view of the resources God has entrusted to us with the mindset of using it to maximize his kingdom. That's stewardship. Not deciding what all I want to do for me, and if I just so happen to have some leftovers, Kick it over there to Jesus. That's not stewardship. That's a complete inversion, a misunderstanding. It's all an opportunity to literally be a part of what God is doing in the world. And it's not somebody else's job to engage with that project. Fourth point. I'm going to intentionally speak out of both sides of my mouth because, you know, preacher, it's what we do. It goes like this Don't give out of compulsion, give out of compulsion. Let me explain. Don't give out of compulsion, give out of compulsion. Where does this willingness and this generosity come from? Are you ready? Paul contradicts himself a little bit, but I think you will forgive him. He says there in verse seven that we should not give out of compulsion, but according to what we have decided in our hearts because of whose we are, because of who we are, because of what compels us. And so earlier in this same letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Don't give out of compulsion, but his love compels you. Now, full disclosure, those two Greek words are slightly different, but they come etymologically from the exact same root. So it's this idea of what binds you, what presses you into action and behavior. Don't give out of compulsion, out of duty and obligation, but because of the love that so constricts your heart That to not do this would create a bifurcation in your soul. That's what Paul's saying. Give out a compulsion out of the love for Jesus. Is 2 Corinthians 5, just like in Galatians, is it Jesus' love for us or is it our love for Jesus? And the answer is yes! Both. It's grammatically unclear and blessedly so. So there is a compulsion after all, but it's the love of Christ and his love for us and our love for him that ought to motivate us. God's love and the kind of generosity that is compelled by the love of Christ. Just look at Jesus. Consider what Jesus did. He stepped into the physical from the spiritual, and he surrendered everything. And God exalted him to the highest place, Philippians 2 says, giving him the name that is above every name. Giving is in response to God's grace. So that brings us at long last after we've talked about these four weeks, generosity and what we believe our church is trying to accomplish. Let me get very pertinent and let me get very practical. And here's here's the ask. The invitation is for every single one of us to engage somehow. Now, we've made it fairly obvious as you've walked in these last two Sundays We've put a commitment card awkwardly there in your seat. And you either said, I'm not paying attention, I'm not saying that, and you just sat on it and you've been uncomfortable both Sundays. Or maybe you've noticed that it's there and you've actually put it up and you slid it in your Bible again. I'm gonna invite you, if you haven't picked one up, to grab one of these commitment cards. And I want to talk about these for just a moment. I want to talk about these because in our in our best attempts, we we're not inspired, we are not inerrant, quite clearly. But as we have gathered together and humbly submitted our plans to the king and prayed together and been open to correction and rebuke from one another, this is what we believe God has led us to do. So you'll see on these cards sort of our vision statement about building leaders, growing communities, and living generously. We want to continue to do that in this context. We've said this before. I want to say it again. We believe that this community is going to grow about 30% in the next five years. That is insane. And so we want to be ready to accommodate those people that God will bring to us, particularly in the downtown context. So how can you pray? How can you engage? You can respond by filling out one of these cards in the physical and drop it in that box between the exit doors on your way out. You can do it online, Bethelbible.com abundant. Or... I suspect, because I've talked to a whole lot of you, you showed up on August 28th and you're like, oh, is it that day? Yeah, I haven't even talked to my wife about this. I haven't even talked to my kids about this. I haven't even talked to my husband. I don't even let my husband come to church because this is going on. Like, "Eh." okay. Our hope was to be really focused on having these things turned in today and online as well. But we also realized that we really would rather you talk about it with your family to pray about it out loud, to please, please pray. There's so much at stake. We don't want to miss God's leading to the left or to the right with all these different priorities that we have for debt reduction, for building acquisition, for remodeling, for missions, all those things. So please commit to pray for us, to pray with us. And please, every single one of you, I would like for you to respond with a card, either online or in the real. Let me give you five very quick reasons why I think it's important for every single one of us to respond. These these reasons are not original to me, but I agree with them. Why should every single person, man, woman, child, fill out one of these cards either in the real or online? Five quick reasons. Number one, there's a biblical reason for every single one of us to fill out a card. There's a biblical reason. It's a refrain in both testaments of our Bible. God gives so that we can give. God is not in the business of just making us fat, dumb, and happy. No, I do that myself, thanks. No, no. God gives so that we can give. God blesses people so that they can be a blessing to others. What's the most quoted verse in your Bible? God so loved the world that he gave. It's his very character. It's his very attribute. The first thing of God's character of his attributes that expresses itself is in giving. And what did he give? Of his very self, his sendable self, his only son. It is his character. The characteristic of God himself is giving. So for all of us to respond, being created in the image of God, being redemptively recreated into the image of the Son of God, we all get to express ourselves in giving. So that's a biblical reason for every single one of us to turn in a card. If not today, then sometime this week, do it online or do it here back in the church in the reel between these exit doors. I would invite you to do that. Secondly, there's a cultural reason Now, I've had enough conversations with most of you, with many of you, that your arms get crossed, your legs get crossed, even that little pinky toe crosses in your shoe. You're just mad as heck and you're not going to take it anymore. What's wrong with the world? Well, in a word, you (laughs) and me and sin. And the assumption in the world that we live in a scarcity-based system. And so I have to clutch, I have to huddle, I have to gather, I have to acquire, and I have to obtain. But there's a cultural reason for filling out one of these cards. It's an antidote to our society. How are we going to save the world? Let's forgive everybody's debts. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Save your letters. Let's do this. Let's lower gas prices. Let's bring all the soldiers home. Let's give everybody free food. Let's No. those, Those are programs that have no staying power. But when the people of God are released from their stuff and are characterized as those people who live generously, it's an antidote to society. We live in an age where very few want to be committed to anything, to their job, to their marriage, to their church, to their nation, but a written commitment card or online, it swims against the current of America's consumer religion. It's an unselfish decision. We get to draw a powerful personal line in the sand of our focused intensity and make something happen. Make our days matter. Make our days count. Thirdly, there's a practical reason for you to fill out a card, every single one of us. It defines what we as a leadership team can count on. Our leaders need clear information to make good decisions. I've been asked, well, how much debt are we going to retire? And I go like this, oh, because I have no idea what the Lord's going to do through you. I don't know. We need to know those numbers so we can actually make some decent decisions. That's the fuel of our figuring. You help us know how to plan when you tell us what you plan to give. Which reminds me of Jesus' own words in Luke 14, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? We need some information. And so there's a practical reason or a, uh, for you to fill out a card and tell us what you think we're going to bring in over the next couple of years. Fourth, there's a personal reason for you to fill out a card, either online or in person today or in the next few days, the personal reason, it really does produce spiritual growth. I don't know what that will mean for you, but I promise you it will. I don't know how, but I promise you that it will. Commitment always builds character and that's what we want for you as well as what your spiritual leaders want for you. The written commitment is between you and God. It's not a contractual pledge to your church. I want to say that again, because that's a question I've been getting. This is between you and God. It's not a contractual pledge between you and your church. You're letting us know what you commit to God to give so that we can plan well. If you would like some sense of accountability that comes from sharing this with any of your pastors or elders or any other leaders, that's probably a good thing and good for your character. But, 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 please, 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 we will never pressure you or make a demand on this commitment. Commitment. If you pledge to do such and such every month over the next two years, and then 18 months in you stop, I'm not going to Now, Billy, we had this conversation already. It's not going to happen. No one's going to pressure you over that. It's between you and the Lord. So I just want to be very, very clear about that. Fifth, there's an inspirational reason why every single one of us should fill out a, a card and respond in some way. Make your life count. That's where we started. You get to be a part of something greater than yourself. It's what Moses was talking about in Psalm 90. It teaches us to number our days. You leave, you create, you multiply your legacy. Each of us invests in something and a whole lot of it doesn't matter. Our hobbies, our, our sports, our social media, our whatever else. But we get to invest where we will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You get to be a part of a church that tackles a big vision together. I don't know how this is gonna go. My wife and kids and my friends know that I, this this is uncomfortable for me, and yet Jesus talked about this stuff more than anything else in the Gospels. As I've prayed about this this week, there are some of you in this room or in the next service that could probably contribute six figures or even seven figures, and I, I, I have no idea. I, I don't know who that is. I'm just saying if that's you, I just want to personally invite you to Golden Corral. No, I'm kidding. No, 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 not Golden I wanna personally invite you to bring that before God. Say, God, is this what you would have of me? He might say no, then praise God. But I wanna invite you, if you're the kind of person that could perhaps give five figures, six figures, seven figures, go before your God and ask him, is this what you would have of me? And then just like the Corinthians, whatever the Lord lays on your heart, whatever you've decided in your heart, just do it. Before the enemy comes in and steals your joy, just do it. And we will be careful to give our God all the glory. For the rest of us, fill out a card online. Pray about it. Mean it. Involve your household. This is an opportunity for our church to lurch forward in spiritual maturity. And for that, like Paul, I thank God for this inexpressible gift. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time, this opportunity to be brought together as your people Indwelled by your spirit, taught by your word. And we do, again, God, just like Nehemiah laid his plans out before the king, we lay out our plans humbly, trembling before you, thinking we think we did this right, but you only know. So, Father, would you move in the hearts of these, your people, to respond in a way that you would have them to respond? Would you, Father, remind us of the glories of your grace and compel us to be a generous people, just like you. So Father, thanks for our time. Pray that you would continue to work in these, your people. And I pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.